And now let us hear the word of the Lord together. Jonah chapter 3, starting with verse (laughs) 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, starting with verse 29. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So this week our readings once again point to the epiphanies, the revealings of Christ in our world. And we have specific emphasis this week on the radical nature of these epiphanies. So if Christ has been revealed, everything must change. Now, our Jonah reading is interesting. This is the only time we get a passage from the book of Jonah in the entire three-year lectionary cycle, which is interesting because many of us who grew up in church, this is a really popular children's Bible story. (laughs) And it's, you know, we know about Jonah and the fish and Nineveh, and some of us saw VeggieTales videos about this and all that stuff. And it's a really popular children's Bible story. But part of the reason why it fits so well in the season of Epiphany is the story is about God revealing God's self to pagan and unlikely people. So if you follow the whole story of Jonah, you see God revealing God's self to the sailors and then also to the Ninevites. So the whole story of Jonah, though, is absurd. It's like a satire. It seems like it's strange. It's upside down. Everything that we think should happen, every stereotype we have in our minds is upended by the Jonah story. 
So in this story, God's prophet, the one who's supposed to speak the voice of God, rebels against God. So already you have this thing where the one who's supposed to be God's voice is going against what God wants, which is strange. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah runs in the opposite direction. While Jonah is running away, a storm comes. The boat is rocked. Jonah admits to the crew that it's his fault for disobeying God. So he suggests that they throw him overboard, (laughs) and they do. And the pagan sailors repent, and they fear Yahweh. So this is fascinating because you can read it on the surface and the story that it is, and that's totally good to do. But also, if you think about this idea of Jonah being thrown into the chaos, into the mess of the world, and he's swallowed by a fish. And then his overboard moment for him becomes a kind of repentance, a kind of change in direction. He's swallowed by a big fish, doesn't ever say it's a whale, big fish, sits there for three days, is spit out on the shore, and that's really where we pick up the story today. Jonah reluctantly obeys God after this and goes to Nineveh. (laughs) Now the expectation is, man, he's had this conversion experience, he's repented, Jonah's going to preach fire now. Like this is going to be an amazing revival for the Ninevites. But look at what Jonah preaches. He preaches this. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's his whole sermon. How's that for an altar call? It's five words in Hebrew. Notice what he doesn't include. There's no mention of what they've done wrong. He just says they're going to be overturned. Or how they're to respond, what they're supposed to do. Like That's a bad altar call if you're not telling people what they're actually supposed to do. He's not even saying how God might overturn them. In fact, there's no mention of God in his five words. He just says it's going to be overturned. So the reader is left to wonder if Jonah's trying to sabotage his own message. Is he trying to spite God for calling him to such a place? It almost reveals that Jonah like resents his calling. There's been a repentance, but he's still not happy he's in Nineveh. He's always resented the fact he's had to go there. Specifically, he resents the place to which he was called. So he's been obedient, but that's all he can seem to do is the bare minimum. I think about place in the Christian life. Where has God placed you? I think as Westerners, as Americans, it's easy for us to think of life as chasing the next place, the dream of getting to the next destination. But the Christian life means living the kingdom of God in the place God has you right now. So you're not called to your idealized Christmas card family. (laughs) You're called to your family with all of its quirks and pain. You're not called at the moment to your future job, to your job. That means the awkward meetings and all that goes along with it. You're not called to your dream house. You're called to your home and your neighborhood. Jonah struggles with this throughout the whole book because Nineveh is where God has led him. God is there. But Jonah refuses to see it. Now, what's interesting is even though he's reluctant, Jonah does speak the truth. What he says is gospel. I mean, it's real, it's real simple, but it is gospel. It's the truth. So as the prophet of God, Jonah says, this is where you're headed as a people. God's going to overturn you in 40 days. Now, for Nineveh, the process, which we could do a whole sermon on the power of process, but the 40 days did their work. And the result for Jonah is comical. Everyone repents. So his five-word sermon that was almost nothing, everybody repents. 
The evil pagans are more responsive to God than Jonah is. Now, the word turned over, this is another comical thing. The word turned over that he says, in 40 days you'll be turned over or overthrown, can also mean transformed. So God takes Jonah's words in a way that Jonah didn't expect. Now, everybody repents. You would think Jonah would celebrate. God has used him in a powerful way. But Jonah still doesn't like this. Later in chapter 4, he says basically the equivalent of, God, I knew you would do this. I knew you were compassionate and slow to anger, but he doesn't say it in a good way. He's like angry about it. Jonah doesn't like that God shows mercy to such corrupt people. This reminds us that the calling of God will lead us to uncomfortable places. Think about where Jesus says we're to love our enemies. Why do we do that? Because that's what God does. That's what God has done for us. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you. So Jonah had limited God in his mind according to his own expectations. But God's mercy is bigger than he could have imagined. And I don't think this can help but cause us to think who are the people in our world who seem too far or too insignificant for God's compassion. Those are the very people in whose hearts God is already at work. Now, our epistle reading that we read hits us in a funny way because for generations, Christians have always emphasized the importance of marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Still, in American Christianity, sometimes marriage is talked about in ways that make it seem like it's ultimate or the final aim and goal of the Christian life. But it's not. Christian marriage is a commitment of service to another person. It's not about self-fulfillment. And marriage will never give you complete self-fulfillment, nor was it designed to. That only happens in Jesus' arms. Additionally, marriage is not everything. (laughs) So in this chapter, Paul has been saying something like, hey, if you aren't married, don't try to be, which to us is like, what? But here he seems to go even further. He says, From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. What? What does that mean? Well, first, it's important to remember that the writers of the New Testament believed that Jesus would return at any time. So everything they communicate is with urgency. So they're giving practical advice for those awaiting the day of the Lord. If that's what you're waiting on, Paul says, don't do anything that would entangle you or distract you from your preparation. Now, this is true, of course, for those who are unmarried, but it also changes the way that married people are to think about their own marriages. They're not to hold them any more loosely, but they are to see their marriages in in the scheme of God's new creation. Marriage doesn't serve the same purpose as it does for pagans. Marriage exists to glorify God and, in this case, anticipate God. This is also true when Paul says those who mourn should go about as if they're not mourning. He's not advocating denial. He's not saying you shouldn't be sad when a loved one passes. He means Christians live with the acknowledgement there will be a day when death is no more. This is also true regarding possessions. Christians should live as a people who know that no thing in life is ultimate. So life ebbs and flows. Material things come and go. You all know this, that someday it's like, okay, we have some savings. (laughs) You know, okay, today we have some extra in the budget. Oh, today we don't. 
So don't hold those things too tightly because none of it has ultimate significance. But there's also more going on. Paul is likely addressing a pressing concern. There had been a significant shortage of grain, and grain was the main source of food in the world. If you had a shortage of grain, it would cause all kinds of problems, especially for the poor. So famine and the ultimate preparation for Christ's return, both of these things require diligence, simplicity, and focus. So Paul's saying these are perilous times. Be ready. Be prepared. And the crisis that the church in Corinth is facing as far as the famine reminds us that the world as we know is incomplete. It's fleeting. We long for the return of Christ when he will make all things new. I mean, even in, a wor- in our world, we know that sometimes things can be appearing like they're going well, but the wellness never really lasts for that long. So even if all of a sudden the crops all come back, you get a raise, everything's going rosy again, Christians still know this can all change really quickly. This can't be the ultimate thing that I hold on to. So Paul's recognizing the Corinthian church is facing all kinds of social pressures that go along with famine. And marriage at the time was a huge financial arrangement. Today, of course, uh, marriage is a significant financial arrangement, but most of the expense involves paying for the wedding today. (laughs) In Paul's time, the bride was actually in some way purchased from her father for a bride price. And a woman's identity was completely wrapped up in whether or not she was married and able to bear children. In such a world, Paul is revolutionary. He's saying your identity as a follower of Jesus is not dependent on whether or not you're married. So it's okay to go ahead and postpone the wedding until this crisis is over. Now, if we honestly believe that a new world is coming, we shouldn't care what the world says about when you should be married, whether you should be further along in your career, anything like that. For the Christian, social status is not what really matters. It's not ultimate. In the same way, one may be in a state of mourning, and that matters. That's important. But it's not one's primary identity. One may be celebrating. Things are going well for you, but that's not the final state of things. You may have bought stuff, but you're not defined by that. Why? Because all of that stuff will one day end. It will not last. But do you know what will last? Paul says this in chapters 13. What will last in God's new world? Faith, hope, and love. Our gospel reading is also about this upending, this changing, this thing that is um, so, so different and challenging our expectations. In the gospel reading, Jesus calls a group of fishermen. He's fresh off his battle with the devil in the wilderness, and Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. In him, the new kingdom has arrived. So this is it. Jesus, it's so fascinating here how Mark does it. Jesus proclaims the good news, and then we see it lived out in the lives of real people. So Simon and his brother Andrew are casting a net into a lake. They're fishing. And Jesus tells them to follow him, and he will make them fishers of people. Now, this fishers of people idea has been used in so many unhelpful ways in modern evangelicalism. Um, My mom tells the story that in the Jesus movement days of the 1970s, girls were told that they should date the popular guys in their school in order to get them to follow Christ. (laughs) This was called Fisher evangelism, reel them in. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. The other thing we often glean from this reading is the tendency to think of fish as nothing more than consumable goods, 
which should just be gleaned at all cost for one's own benefit. So what happens is this fishing metaphor gets mixed with American capitalism and this story becomes about evangelistic quantity. So we treat those who don't know Christ like they're just ready to be hooked and we need to hook as many people as possible. I once heard a famous preacher say, we will do anything short of sin to win people for Christ. Think about that. I will do anything short of sin to win people for Christ. And I I get it on some level. I understand the heart behind saying such a thing. I appreciate the passion for evangelism, especially if we described evangelism as proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But in some sense, that communicates a lack of care for people as people. We see them as evangelistic conquests or people to just kind of get in the net or get hooked, right? Fishing at the time wasn't like that. Fishing was a delicate craft. It was taken with all seriousness and a deep reverence for creation. So the goal was not merely trying to see how many fish you could get in the boat, but to provide food for a village. That was the goal. The disciples are not called to Jesus because of the promise of worldly success. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll make you way better fishermen, the best fishermen of all. No, Jesus says, follow me and I'm going to change the purpose and trajectory of your entire life. Fishing was these men's lives. It wasn't just their profession. The town they lived in thrived on fishing. The Zebedee family had likely been fishing for generations. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. He calls them away from their family business, away from all they've ever known. And look at this little detail that Mark includes. It specifically says they left their father Zebedee in the boat. (laughs) So bye, dad. Jesus upends the disciples' natural way of life. And throughout the gospels, he does this over and over and over again. And in the same way, Jesus upends the natural rhythms of our lives as we follow him. He upends the natural rhythms of our vocations. He upends family expectations and social expectations and the things we've done just because they seem the right thing to do in our place and time. Think about how all this ties together. You know, Jonah has a certain expectation of where he should go with the gospel, but God doesn't meet his expectations. The Corinthians have this idea about their expectation about marriage and when they should be married and the social customs that go along with that. And Paul says, no, you got a bigger thing than that. And then here, the disciples are fishing and they're living their lives and the whole trajectory changes. Not only does Jesus lead them away from fishing, notice the order of the calling. They're called to repent and believe. So the word repent is like turn or return, but it's coupled with believe. So turn away or return and trust or believe or hold on to the good news. Jesus is inviting them into something new. So Jesus' calling always goes out. It's always challenging people, not just to improve their lives with a little dose of God, but to repent, to upend the apple cart of their lives and believe a different story. I'll end with a few words here. I I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel the temptation that I just want my life to be just a normal American life, (laughs) living the normal rhythms of life, pursuing normal aims and goals, and then also be a Christian. (laughs) Kind of add that. We often want to have the American dream, to have a standard or ambitious career trajectory. In some ways, we want our our faith to be like our car insurance. (laughs) 
<laughs> or our gym or our Netflix subscription or our favorite restaurant. We just kind of add it in. Now, I have a coffee shop in my neighborhood, and I'm thankful with all the snow I can still get there. It's called Dose. get a little dose of coffee every day or every time that I go, and I went there this morning. I love, I'm loyal to Dose. I, I love it there. But the Christian faith is not like my loyalty to my coffee shop. <laughs> it's not just one part of my life. It's a strange thing being a Christian. Much like the book of Jonah, the Christian life can feel like a satire. We bring all of our assumptions about what it means to be happy, successful, and fulfilled, a who is worthy of love, and all along, God turns our expectations upside down. Being normal is not possible if one desires to be a Christian. If we follow him, Jesus will constantly upend our expectations. We'll be constantly surprised. Now, I should clarify here, it's always for our good. (laughs) This is never that God just enjoys just messing us up or that there's some abstract concept of his glory that we're supposed to point to instead of what's good for us. No, God always knows what's good for us and always desires for our good. And as we listen for God's voice, we may find that God challenges our identity and vocation in profound ways. It will change the way that we see what we do. We all have these primary fears that govern our, govern our lives, and they're different depending on your personality. So some, for some of us, we fear losing security. So we do what's safe and what's prudent all the time. It causes us to seek out only safe neighborhoods, safe opportunities, stable things. There's nothing wrong with stability, but it can become an idol. If we idolize security, we may shut out places where God may be leading us to discomfort. As the angels often say in scripture, do not be afraid. Some of us are driven by people pleasing or by success or fame. We want to be liked or be valued. So we move towards opportunities to be praised or celebrated. Again, there's nothing wrong with being praised or celebrated, but this can quickly become an idol for us. Perhaps for some of us, God is leading us to places of anonymity. Likewise, some of us are afraid of blending in. We want to stand out from the crowd. We want to be special. We see this idol at work among the disciples when they argued over who would sit at Jesus's right and left hand. Little did they know the throne would be a cross. Some of us are deeply afraid of our weakness. We don't ever want to be in a place where we're not competent or knowledgeable or where we're dependent on someone else. So you've heard this phrase, we fake it till we make it. (laughs) Like the rich young ruler, we want others to say, look at how smart you are. When Jesus actually says, give it all up and follow me. Some of us fear loss of control. We're afraid of being controlled by others or circumstances that we must always be the one in control. But perhaps God is calling us toward a glorious loss of control. That requires a deep trust. Whatever our basic fear, God is there with both comfort and challenge to that basic fear. So he meets that basic fear in a way that nothing in the world can. And yet it is quite different from what we expect or what we think we want. Therein lies the surprise. Finally, the good news of the kingdom will always lead us outwards to those who think themselves far away. God's love is so much bigger than we could ever expect. 
God loves those who are far away. And also God loves you in the place you are right now, no matter how ordinary or boring it feels or difficult it is. He is working right there. We're invited to examine our lives afresh each day. How is the spirit at work in my life? How do we identify that? Well, we listen for where are those places where there's faith, hope, and love that's springing up? Where are those places I see that? And then also, what are the idols I cling to? What are the things that give me a sense that I'm kind of running my life? How do we identify those? We might think about how do I define the good life? What is the way I think about, man, life is really the best when I think about this? That helps us identify sometimes, am I chasing after the right things? Just as God transformed Jonah, transformed the Ninevites, just as God radically reoriented the lives and vocations of the fishermen, this is what it means to be a disciple, to be upended, transformed, or overturned. And this also requires a change in who we believe is worthy of God's love. Is God's love wide enough to invite those who are different from you, who think differently from you, who vote differently from you, May we listen for God's voice as he tells us to drop our nets. May we seek his overturning, resist the social expectations and political agendas of our world, and follow him, knowing that in Christ there is a brand new world. May we celebrate and share the wideness of his grace. Amen.